Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And he's the brightness of his glory. Philippians chapter 3, I want to lead you through 14 verses that I believe are very important for us. The Lord has led me to believe that right now in all the New Testament, there is not a more important passage for us than these 14 verses, Philippians 3, 8 through 21. I am not going to dwell on every word this morning. I have been much perplexed as to how I ought to teach you these verses. So I'm going to teach them all to you this morning, but that doesn't mean that I won't come back to dwell on them at length because there's so much in these verses. My brethren, this is our calling. You may ask yourselves from time to time, where do we go from here? What's next? What's my goal? What should my plan be for the future? Where does the Lord want me to head? What direction do I head in? A true child of God wants to know what he should be doing next. This is it right here. This is it. This is the perspective of the righteous. Oh, Christian, hear me this morning. In this passage, we have described the greatest contrast. We have pressing saints and belly worshipers. Right. And you cannot be in between. You are a pressing saint or you are a belly worshiper. And so we have set before us here the Holy Spirit's perspective of how we should be living the rest of our lives. I believe it's the single most descriptive passage in the New Testament detailing the Christian life for mature saints. As we look at these verses, we're going to see an underlying figure throughout, and that is a race. Not once, not twice, but several times, we're going to see a race, and we are in a race. When Paul got to the end of his life, he said, I have finished my course. He knew that his life had been a race. He said that he ran in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, knowing that only one man could win the prize. He ran with the same perspective that carnal men run, and that is there's first place and there's losers. Right. And he wanted to win the race that God had given him. And so in these verses, we're going to see several references to a race. We think of our brother Paul as probably the most spiritual man of the New Testament. He knew Christ better. He labored more diligently for him. And yet we're going to see that Paul was still pressing. He was a pressing saint. He never backed off. And do you know what he's going to tell us in here? That we're to have the same mind that he has. The same mind that he had. We're to be pressing. And he says there's another mind. And it's the mind of carnal Christianity which are belly worshipers that we're not to have. This passage tells you what you ought to do with the rest of your life. When you get up in the morning and you think of those words, today is the first day of the rest of your life, I hope that in light of those words you'll think, this day I should be using to practice Philippians 3, 8 through 21. He's going to show us that we should follow human examples and he's going to be the chief one of them. He's going to give us perspective and direction for living. I can't imagine a sermon more important for you or for me than Philippians 3, 8 through 21. There is no congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ without its belly worshipers. And that is true here also. May the Lord save us. Philippians chapter 3. Let me read it all to you. Today is to be a superficial study of it for you to get the whole message. And if and when I come back to it, we will go into every word, but I don't want you to be lost examining the trees so that you miss the shape of the forest. I want to read these 14 verses to you. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, 
and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word. Amen. These verses describe your life the way that it should be from this day forward. My life the way that it should be from this day forward. Pressing in a race to obtain and win Jesus Christ and to reach the resurrection of the just. And to avoid that horrible calamity that there would be in the churches of Christ, belly worshipers, whose God is their belly. And what is the simple description of a belly worshiper? They mind earthly things. Right. May God save us. Yea, doubtless. He doesn't have any doubt about this subject matter, does he? In the first seven verses of Philippians chapter 3, Paul has warned the Philippians, a good church, a church that has very little in the way of rebuke in its four chapters. He has warned them of the Jewish Judaizers that would come and try to destroy their liberty in Christ. He has said to beware of these, the concision, to beware of these dogs, Philippians 3, 2. He says, for we're the circumcision, we're Jesus Christ. And if any of them think that they can trust in the flesh for their salvation, I can trust more than anyone, because look at my attainments. And then he lists them in verses 4 and 5 and 6. But he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Everything that I used to trust in for my salvation, everything that I used to trust in to please God, I now count it all loss. And I had more to rest on than any Judaizer ever had. But I count it all loss. And so he sets up the greatest example of putting down the Jewish system of worship and of trusting in the law for righteousness by saying, I had more of it than anyone, but I've counted all loss because there is the true source of righteousness that's been revealed, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we come in to the first two words of verse 8. Yea, doubtless, is equivalent to our without a doubt. Don't think that I'm wondering or I have any doubt about counting all things loss. They are a loss to me. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All things 
everything that Paul trusted in, everything that Paul loved, everything that he had spent his years in, everything that had been lifted up by the Jewish nation, he counted all a loss. He did not care about any of it. He didn't love any of it. It was all a loss to him, and he calls it an exchange for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He calls knowing Jesus Christ something excellent. Something excellent. Is it excellent to you? Is it so excellent to you that you would fit the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ, he would say, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that is the spirit of Christ teaching us that the kingdom of heaven is like unto that. It is that precious. It is that excellent. And so Paul counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. He wanted to know Jesus Christ. And it wasn't bare head knowledge. It wasn't just an accumulation of facts. Right. He wanted to know him experimentally. And by experimentally, I mean intimately and personally. And he wanted to know him by living the same way that he lived. He wanted to share in his sufferings. He wanted to share in his life. He wanted to share in his spirit. He wanted to share in his perspective on things. That's what he meant by knowing Christ. Not just an accumulation of facts, but more than that. To know that he was one with Christ in his purpose for living in the way that he was willing to mortify his flesh, the way that he was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Christ was excellent to him. And brethren, we must be like Paul. We must be thus minded. And if we're not, we have got to go to God and beg him to save us, to deliver us from our minding earthly things, and to restore unto us a sense of pursuit of Christ and appreciation for him, that will make everything in this life pale. You have within you a default mode. Every one of you, and I have it also. The minute we stop pressing, we're out of the race. The minute the things of Christ are no longer excellent to us, we are belly worshipers because we have a flesh that craves the things of this life. And so the minute that we stop our praying, our meditating, our reading, and our seeking Christ and our singing, there we go. Because we've got a default mode that automatically takes over. And so we have got to look at a passage like this and say, Lord, I want this. And it's what I want for all of you. You cannot relax. We're in a race. Have you ever heard of a race that you can relax in? You say you're putting such a burden on me this morning. Oh, no, I'm not putting a burden on you. I'm laying up a crown of righteousness for you and showing you that it's at the end of a course. And the only way that you can have any confidence that there's a crown laid up for you is to pursue it like Paul did. There is no evidence any other way. None. If you're not a pressing saint, you are a belly worshiper and God is your belly and your end is destruction. You say, well, what about carnal Christians? How do you know which carnal Christians have their names written in the book of life? A carnal Christian looks like a worldling, looks like a belly worshiper, looks like someone whose end is destruction. We have a default mode, and we've got to hate that default mode and despise it and ask God to help us and and never feed it and seek those spiritual things that are above so that we can press after Christ and count His knowledge to be excellent to us. I know what it's like to live. I know that you're going to leave this place and be bombarded with millions of things to take away your attention from Jesus Christ. I I can promise you this. In the day of the resurrection, it's described down here in verse 11 that Paul wanted to attain to the resurrection. You are not not going to think about anything in your life. And do you know what our deceitful hearts do about the things of our lives? Here is how your deceitful heart works. 
Here's how my deceitful heart works. My earthly things are better than your earthly things. Amen. Take that. Take that. My earthly things are noble. Your earthly things are stupid. My earthly things have value. Your earthly things are dumb and worthless. And we go through a lot of thinking like that intuitively, unconsciously, consciously, vigorously. We even speak it sometimes. And you know what? All of it is trash. Amen. All of it is dung. That it, the heart is so deceitful, it convinces us that our earthly things are noble and they're part of godliness. But no, they aren't. Godliness is all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you're not seeking his knowledge and considering the knowledge of him, and I mean experimentally knowing Christ and understanding his sufferings, being willing to suffer with him, knowing that he gave up everything in order to die on the cross, so we're willing to give up anything and to mortify our flesh for him. That's what I mean by experimentally knowing Jesus Christ, craving him personally and intimately, not just being able to quote me 20 or 40 Bible verses about him. That is the spirit of Philippians 3. There is no place for anything of this life, no matter how noble you think it is. He goes on to say, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I want you to notice that he used the word suffered. He suffered the loss of all things. Right. When we give up things, it is a suffering. It, it, there's a price to pay. The Lord Jesus Christ just wants to know, do we love him enough to pay the price? Right. We, we have all been brought into this world with empty slates, and our little mommies and daddies, and I say that with due regard, have filled, helped us fill our slate with things. Some it's money. Some it's education. Some it's physical activity and accomplishments. Some it's prestige or social standing. And the list goes on and on. And we get this slate all filled up with things that are important to us. And to take that slate and break it over our knees and to cast it away is hard. Because we feel like we're, being, we're undoing our whole lives. What is there for me, if not that? But it's Christ. And I'll tell you in the great day, and it's all coming. And brethren, I spoke to someone this morning. We can't even boast of tomorrow. Right. Some of us may meet Christ tomorrow. None of it matters. None of it matters in our spiritual race. Look at Paul. It's all loss that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. In verse 11, but he calls it a suffering. And I want to point out that if you're not suffering by giving up something, you aren't pursuing Christ yet. You long distance runners, have you ever run a, a long distance race where you didn't do some suffering in it? If you didn't do some suffering, then you didn't hold the pace up. If you're holding the pace and you're pressing for the prize, there's some suffering involved in a long distance race. And we better be looking for what in what in my life is cheating is cheating me, is distracting me from running. In a race, one of the simplest rules is quit looking at the runners around you or being distracted by anything beside the course. Keep your attention focused on the course and keep running. When you see somebody looking around and checking, they are a loser. And when we're running our spiritual race, looking around is considering all the goodies that the world has to offer and it distracts us from pressing in our race course toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And it takes it there is suffering to ignore all that that's going on around us and to focus. We see the worldlings around us. They, the Bible says about them, and it's so true, God is not in all their thoughts. Amen. And we know that. And we, God, they never think about God at all. And they're prospering. That is distracting. But forget it, brethren. There is a great day of equalizing coming, and it's called the day of the resurrection and the day of judgment. And so we suffer the loss of things gladly for Christ and do count them but dung. And whether anybody would think that's politically correct or pulpit correct or not, I want to tell you something about the God that you worship. These are the words chosen by the Holy Ghost, Amen. not by Paul, right. by the Holy Ghost, Amen. that in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ and the excellent things of knowing him, everything of this life is dung. Amen. 
translate it any way you wish into your 20th century version. And he says, it's all done that I may win Christ. That doesn't mean to beat Christ. That doesn't mean to get Christ as your prize. It means to get Christ's approval. When we try to win someone, we know what we're talking about. When we try to win someone, we want them to approve of us and to love us and to favor us and to accept us. And we want to win Jesus Christ by pursuing him so that we get his approval and his acceptation in that great day. Oh, brethren, to hear the words, I never knew you. That is not winning Christ. And the only way we can ever know that we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, is to press in the race. Because if we're not pressing, how in the world do we deserve the words, well done? We'll never deserve them apart from his grace. But he's given us his grace for us to use it diligently. That I may win Christ. He wanted to win Jesus Christ. To approve of him, to accept him, and to give him and to fulfill the hope of eternal life that he had promised Paul. And be found in him. This is going to explain winning Christ. When I stand before Christ, I want to be found in him. How do we get in Christ? It's one of our memory verses for this week. According as he hath chosen us in him, in him. God's chosen us in Jesus Christ before the world began. That we should be holy and without blame. I would like to meet the great judge of all. Holy and without blame, wouldn't you? Holy and without blame. Do you know what without blame means? There's nothing that he can lay to your charge because he's justified you. That's to be found in Christ in that great day. Nothing hindering you from heaven. Nothing. And that's because of God's sovereign choice and election. Be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, which the Judaizers all trusted in that they were keeping the law well enough to earn the favor of God. But he says, I want to be found in Christ not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Your righteousness is dependent upon the faith and the works and the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This faith right here is Christ's obedience on your behalf. When the Bible says, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's the righteousness that we want. And that righteousness is by the obedience of one, and faith is obedience. Jesus Christ was faithful on our behalf. If you don't think Jesus Christ was faithful, you haven't read your Bible. Go back and start at Psalm 22 and read all the way through the end of the Bible and see about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in going to the cross for us. He trusted in God. His enemies knew it and accused him of it. The Bible says he trusted in God. Read what he said on the cross, which I've taught to you recently. He had great faith and great obedience. He believed everything God had written. He kept all of his commandments. He believed all of his promises. That his soul would not be left in hell, nor his flesh see corruption. He believed it all. He had great faith, and that faith drove him to perfect obedience. And that perfect obedience is the condition and the meritorious cause and basis and the instrumental reason for our righteousness, and there is no other. It's not our faith. Our faith doesn't add one whit to our righteousness. If our righteousness depends on our faith, there's no one going to heaven. No one. All our faith does is perceive, recognize, understand, and believe the righteousness that has been given to us freely by the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's contained here also. Because Paul wanted to be found in Jesus Christ in his righteousness, which was by his faith, the righteousness which is of God by faith. It's a system of faith versus a system of the law. But the system of faith, all it is is God justifies the ungodly. The Bible doesn't say that God justifies the faithful. It says God justifies the ungodly. That's what we believe. God justifies the ungodly by the faith and obedience of Jesus Christ. I I don't want to turn very many places, but I want to turn one, just to one. Galatians chapter 2. 
I want to show you how our faith and his faith come together. It's shown in other places also, but Galatians 2.16 is a wonderful, it's a long verse, but it explains this whole thing well. In the early church, because many of them were converted Jews, they were still putting their confidence in the law of Moses and circumcision in order to be saved. And so Paul spends so many of his chapters undoing their foolish ideas. He says in Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Now we believe every word of God is pure. If you still have a little bit, of, a little part of you that looks into Galatians 2.16, you need to get a tape from three weeks ago, a message entitled, Every Word of God is Pure. If you still have a problem after that, then go to the sermon following that. And then the one from last week. We believe every word of God is pure. There isn't a mistake here. The faith of Christ should not be faith in Christ. Amen. It is the faith of Jesus Christ. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The reason we believe on Jesus Christ is in order to lay hold of, recognize, perceive, and get for our confidence the righteousness and justification that came by Christ's faith. There is a place for our believing. It's for our soul satisfaction, our soul assurance, our confidence that when that great day comes and it's coming, it's coming, we'll be found in his righteousness. That's why we believe in Christ, that we can be justified by his faith. We don't add to his faith, and, it, and ours is not a condition for it being applied to us. You've been justified since you were elected <clears throat> because all, everything in the mind of God is in is a, is a chain that you can put it all in the past tense. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Is there both of those in the past tense? Yeah, I think so. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. glorified. Now, are we glorified yet? But it was written in the past tense because in the purpose and plan of God, it's as good as if it was all in the past tense because it is sure. It's as sure as if it was in the past tense. Amen. Our justification is absolutely sure. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That's your other verse for this week. Is it your faith that justifies? No, it's God that justifies. What does your faith do? It lays hold of that justification that was secured by Christ for you so that you can know it, perceive it, believe it, and rejoice in it. Just as if, just in the same way, if you have faith in Christ without any works, what are the works for? The works are so that you can know that your faith is a true faith. And so we end up we end up needing works, good works, pleasing God, keeping His commandments, doing those things that He has commanded us to do, according to James chapter 2, in order to give reality to our faith. And our faith gives reality to what God's done for us because we lay hold on His righteousness by believing. Right. Knowing that a man is justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, because that's where we're laying all our hope for the future, is on the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, who Amen. went to the cross and died for us. Our faith isn't going to get us anywhere. Our faith gets us inside our confidence that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And if we diligently seek Him and lay, lay hold on Jesus Christ, it's evidence that He did justify us or we wouldn't have faith because faith follows righteousness. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says that Jesus Christ gave us righteousness by Himself and that righteousness brings forth our faith. And we're to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and so forth. Back to Philippians chapter 3. Paul wanted to be found in him. That is in Jesus Christ, not with his own righteousness by the law, but the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ and perceived by our faith and laid hold of by our faith. Did you know that? Remember, remember, brethren, that I showed you from 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Paul told Timothy 
that he was to lay hold of eternal life, and he told the rich that if they'd be rich in good works and willing to distribute their financial excess, that they could lay hold on eternal life. That's what faith does. It lays hold on justification. doesn't add a thing to it, doesn't make it real, doesn't complete it, isn't the instrumental cause of it. It just lays hold of it for your own satisfaction, perception, comfort, assurance. Just like the good works of giving money. If you take any other position about faith, I'm going to force you to take the same position on giving money, and pretty soon we'll be buying indulgences for one another. Because of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that says if you give money, you're laying hold of eternal life. Forget it all. It's all of Christ and it's all of grace. And we believe that we can be justified by his perfect substitution for us. Oh, brethren, did anybody have to believe in the first Adam in order to be made a sinner by his disobedience? Did you have to add your disobedience to Adam's disobedience in order for you to be a sinner? Or are you you a sinner and condemned because of a covenant relationship with the first Adam? And it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. And so it is with the second Adam. It's a covenant relationship. The second Adam obeyed for us faithfully. By faith, he believed God, trusted in God, and did everything that God commanded him to do. And by his perfect righteousness, we are saved. He says that I may know him, in verse 10, that I may know Jesus Christ. That is to know him experimentally and personally, and he's going to explain it now, and the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted to know the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection, and he was still pressing for it. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is the same power that raised us from the dead. Right. Spiritual death. What raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that is supposed to be in our life, bringing us to a new life. And to know the power of his resurrection is to live a resurrected life. What we say what we're going to do when we're baptized. When we're baptized, we're buried with him and we're raised in the likeness of his resurrection that we'll walk in newness of life. We make that testimony when we're baptized. This is our purpose for the rest of our lives. From our baptism forward, we should be increasingly more like Paul. Right here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That my life reflects a great change made by the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't live the way I used to. I live a different way. I have victory over those things that I didn't think I could have a victory over. Because of the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Paul was. We know that, don't we? Right. He was beaten so many times, stoned, shipwrecked, in perils, naked, cold, hungry, in prison. He was willing to suffer. What is your suffering? What suffering have you done for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to suffer? The fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know Jesus Christ. And he's telling you what he means. He doesn't mean memorizing more verses. He means, I want to be willing to suffer as cheerfully for the cause of Christ. And every one of us have opportunities to suffer for the cause of Christ, even though we're not led to stakes to be burned to death. We suffer in our marriages. We suffer in our families. We suffer in our church. Whenever we give up things that we want, we can suffer with Christ and be willing to do so cheerfully and eagerly because he suffered so much for us. Right. He suffered the railing and abuse of sinners against himself and contradicting him no matter what he said or did. And he did that for us. Can we put up with that same form of suffering? And being made conformable to his death, are you willing to die? And I don't even mean dying at the stake. That's too easy. I mean willing to die every day, dying to self, being willing to mortify yourself, put yourself to death. Do you know he said if anyone's going to try to save their life in following me, they're going to they're lose it. Right. But if they'll lose their life, don't we usually call that death? If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And that's knowing Jesus Christ. If sometimes you're, you hear me or someone else say, you need to know Christ and seek Christ. What do I mean? I mean what is contained in verse 10. It's just what Paul meant. 
It's know the power of his resurrection. Are you living a victorious, resurrected life over sin? Do you have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ by being willing to suffer with him? Do you put yourself to death like he did? He laid down his life for us. That's what it means to know Christ. Because when you're doing those three things, you are in union with Jesus Christ in a personal, intimate, experimental way by going through what he went through. And so it's more than just a knowledge of facts about the person of the Son of God. It's living like him. Because if you live like him, then you are like him. And if you're like him, you're going to be with him for eternity. If by any means... I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul looked at this as the evidence of how you make it to the resurrection of the dead. And remember, everyone is going to be raised from the dead. But there's a resurrection of the just, and there's a resurrection of the unjust, and it's one resurrection. I've preached on that recently from Acts chapter 24, but he wants to be in the resurrection of the just. And this is the route by which he knew, because he was discarding all trust in the law, He was laying hold only of Jesus Christ, and he wanted to live for Jesus Christ. He wanted to win the approval of Christ, and he wanted to live like Jesus Christ with a victorious life, a suffering life, and putting himself to death, knowing that if he did those things, it was the evidence that he would be in the resurrection of the just. We would look at those and say, surely Paul did all those, and he did. He did them better than we do them. But do you know what he said? He said, not as though I had already attained. I haven't, I haven't guaranteed to myself that I'm going to be in that resurrection. I haven't fulfilled my course yet completely. Not as though I had already attained. Either we're already perfect. But I follow after. There he is in his race. You see all the runners coming around a curve, and there's Paul in the middle of them. But there's a look on Paul's face that's different than the rest. There's an intensity there and a passion there. He's going to pass those that are around him. He's following in this course that Jesus Christ has laid out. He's laid out this cross-country course, and he's following it with a passion and an intensity that he is going to win. I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus Christ Jesus reached down and took the Apostle Paul and changed his life and saved him and gave him a calling and put him back down on the ground. And all Paul wants to do is spend the rest of his life to fulfill what Jesus Christ called him to do. And Jesus Christ has called us to do the same thing, to live for him. He's died for us. Can we live for him? It's a race. He says, I follow after. I am continuing to follow this calling that Jesus Christ has given me to win him. I want to apprehend. To apprehend someone is to arrest them or to grab them or to get a hold of them or to seize them. And Paul says, Jesus Christ seized me. I was running wild against God. Didn't know what I was doing. He seized me, arrested me, changed me. And now I want to seize and lay a hold of what he's called me to win. And that's to win his approval and his favor and his blessing and his promise of eternal life by serving him with my whole life. This is no joke. This is eternity. Why did he save any of us? Why did he save us and leave us here? He saved us and left us here that we might live for him. Amen. And we get so distracted with our lives, but Paul followed after that goal that Christ had given him when he put him in the race. He put him in a race and he said, you can run because I've given you my grace. You can run fast because I've given you lots of grace. And the prize is eternal life and my approval. You've been fighting against me, but I'm taking over your life. And he's done that for all of us. He's put us in a race and he's given us the grace that we can win. All we have to do is stay focused on our race. But you've got a heart right now that's trying to get you unfocused while I'm talking. And you're going to leave here, and the whole world is going to try to keep you off of focus. And you're going to come to that day, and it's going to catch you unawares. And there's a Satan out there that doesn't want you in the race at all. Right. Because he wants Jesus Christ to finish line with no finishers. 
brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Jesus Christ apprehended Paul. He gave Paul a goal that Paul wanted to apprehend. But Paul tells us in verse 13, I don't count myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, one thing, I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forth unto those things which are before. When we look back behind us, what are we looking at sometimes? Sometimes we're looking at failures. Was Paul a sinner? Could Paul have looked back and said, look at how many years I wasted? Is there any productivity in that? He didn't look back. Can we look back and see our successes? Is there any productivity in looking back? Is there any productivity on the seventh lap of a race to look back and say, wow, that split on the fourth, the fourth lap, that was awesome. Come on. I hope that some of you have ever been on a, a, a quarter-mile track. In the seventh lap of a race, for you to be thinking about how well you did in the fourth lap, is that going to serve you well? Or should the seventh lap be your concern? Amen. I do one thing. I don't look back. Do you, can you think of anyone that did look back and miss the things that they were giving up to be in the race? You know, the ones that were laying on their blankets over here in the sunshine having a picnic. Can you think of anyone in the Bible that looked back like that? Lot's wife. Yep. Remember Lot's wife? She looked back at the city of Sodom because everything that was important to her was being burned up. If the whole world was to go into fire... If we have our eyes set on Christ, it wouldn't bother us a bit. Amen. The whole world. I forget everything that's behind. Failures, successes, and all the things that I've counted loss. Because they're all dung to me anyway. I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forth under the things which are before. Can you please have in your mind the image of a man in a race? Because Paul wants you to have it, and the Holy Ghost wants you to have it. Because the Christian life is a race. It's not a retirement home. It is a race. And if you don't like that race, you are not saved. Right. Because you do not yet know the warfare that exists between Satan, the world, and our flesh, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a retirement home. We don't hear the truth about the gospel and then just get in here and sing about Jesus. We're in a race, and we come together to provoke one another to love and to good works, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. Amen. We are capable of departing from the living God, and we do depart from the living God when we walk out of these doors and start talking about our jobs and our health and our exercise and our clothes and our degrees and our graduation and our high school programs and our college major. Those things don't matter. Right. They're, they're unnecessary evils. Because there's only one thing that matters. Right. And that is winning Jesus Christ. And we get all wrapped up in these things. And someone will say, well, two of those that you just mentioned are noble. There's nothing noble in this world. Solomon said it's all vain, vanity, and vexation of spirit. Yeah. There is nothing noble here. Yeah. You're deceived. And you're deceived with dung. It's a glorious race and it's not a burdensome race because he's given us the grace to run and he's running it with us. He ran it before us and he's waiting at the finish line. And instead of a cold drink, brethren, it's eternal glory Amen. forever. It's eternal glory. And do you know what the victory stand's going to look like? Let me tell you about it. The victory stand before the throne of God when he says to most, I never knew you. Depart from me. Right. And the books are opened and you look just like the rest. It doesn't look like you've won anything except eternal condemnation. Except another book is open. It's the book of those that finished their course. Every race has a book. As they finish, their numbers are put down and they're kept track of based on their entries. And we were entered into this race by the loving grace of a sovereign God. Thanks be to God. Amen. And this race does not earn us eternal life, right. but this race is what we're supposed to do with the eternal life he's given us. Amen. Right. And he will own us before the universe as his. 
and if you have run a good race, it will be remembered in that day. I was able to tell a brother. I've told you the circumstances before the service this morning. That in the great day, Matthew chapter 25, he visited someone in prison, didn't he? And the righteous are going to say, when did we ever visit anyone in prison? And he's going to say, as long as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Right. I was, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege of being a pastor to be able to tell someone that. But brethren, there's going to be a victory stand. The victory stand is called the blood of Jesus Christ. But on that stand are going to be those that ran their race. We don't know about anyone else. If you, if you refuse to run the race or you're so distracted, you're off over here in the woods running into trees. You're not on the course. There's no evidence that you're in the race. and you, There's no evidence that you were put there by the grace of God. I reach forth into those things which are before. I hope you can see that runner. I press. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence. Right. And the violent take it by force. Luke 16, 16 tells us the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Getting into the kingdom of Jesus Christ is something that you have to press after and take it by violence. And that violence is tearing things out of your life and disagreeing with others around you and counting them all but lost that you can win Jesus Christ. I press toward the mark. Can you see a runner with his tendons and every ligament straining and his face straining and his intense gaze on that finish mark? I press toward the mark because there's a mark laid up there by Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul presses toward it. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We are called his sons. And so we're to run like we're the sons of God. And it is a race. And it's not a burdensome race. He gives us grace. Amen. We just choose to run. And as we choose to run, he gives us the strength to run. And the more we choose to run, and the more focused we are in our race, the more grace he gives. So that Paul could say and almost sound confused in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I am what I am by the grace of God. But the grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain because I ran more furiously than them all. But not, yet not I with the grace of God that was with me. Oh, look forward to this race because there's grace in it. Right. You try to stay out of the race, well, what if I lose? That's the man who went and put his talent in the ground. I don't like competition. It scares me. You're saving your life. You're trying to save your life, you'll lose it. Get out there in that race and run for Jesus Christ and you'll find it. And the most happiness is reserved for those that run the hardest. Right. Because they have the greatest assurance of their eternal life and they have the closest relationship with Jesus Christ, their Lord, who is running that race right along with them, who ran it before them, and who is waiting at the finish line. And as long as they keep their eyes on him, they can run on water. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's eternal life and adoption and being the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the prize. And we're to be running toward it, not just saying, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. That's the legal phase. When we get, that's the legal phase of justification. When we get to the practical phase, it's a race. And we're to be racing for him. And I love verse 15, brethren, let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. What does it mean? Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. Perfect or spiritually mature. I could take you to 10 verses and show you what the word perfect means. No one's perfect. And Paul has just said in verse 12 that he wasn't perfect. But now he says as many of us as are perfect. And he means spiritual. There, there are spiritual members in a church. And those that are spiritual, those that are the closest to being like Paul, let us be thus minded. Right. And what's his mind? His mind is all things lost for Christ. I press in my race to know Jesus Christ and everything else is dumb. Right. And we're all to have that same mindset. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to know what does God want for my life? Right. Everybody wants to ask, what is the will of God for my life? I'll tell you what the will of God is for your life. Be thus minded. Be thus minded. Can we be just like Paul? 
I'm not, I'm saving your life this morning. It may sound like I'm putting pressure on you. I'm saving your life. Go ahead and try to avoid the race. If you're a child of God, he's going to beat you to a pulp because you didn't want to run his race because Jesus Christ wasn't excellent to you. You say, beat me to a pulp. That doesn't sound very kind. Well, the word he uses is scourging. That's not very kind either, but it is kind because he's going to try to get you into that race. He's going to move you into that race by coming after you and chastening, and his chastening is not pleasant. Join the race. Try to save your life by staying out of it, and you're going to lose it. Lose your life by going ahead and getting into that race, and you'll find it, brethren. The blessing is there. The salvation is there. God's reward is there. And that is the mind we ought to have. What is God's will for the rest of my life? I'm telling you to be like the Apostle Paul. Right. To have his mind to be thus minded and look at this comfort this is why it is so easy to run this race if we'll just humble ourselves and get into it and if in anything ye be otherwise minded God shall reveal even this unto you Amen. that is wonderful as much as you can hear what I'm saying this morning humble yourself and tell yourself this is the race I must be in I cannot let anything distract me not marriage not perspective prospective marriage, not potential marriage, not college, not education, not physical health, not nutritional eating, nothing. Not wealth, not money, not retirement, nothing. I must pursue Christ. And if I'm left destitute, uneducated and illiterate, but I have obtained Christ, my life is a success. Amen. Rather than to go out of this world, which you lose everything that you ever acquired here, and to meet Christ, you didn't run your race well. Lord, help us. If in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Who's he going to reveal it to? Those that make their minds just like Paul's. He'll show you more. And he's showing you some this morning. And if you don't like hearing what I'm preaching, I know it's not entertaining to your flesh. There's only one kind of a man that would ever want to hear this. And that's a man who's already thus minded unless God is being gracious to you. Because if you're wrapped up in carnal things, what I'm preaching is the absolutely most boring subject that can ever be addressed. And that's running a spiritual race for Christ. If you want a different kind of a pastor, then get one. Because I don't want to be any other kind of a pastor than one that wants your mind to be just like the Apostle Paul's. Amen. He called me to preach through about 1,000 generations of preachers, and this is what he wants preached. And we must be running this race, and it's an exciting race. I would much rather get together with all of you and forgive the expression using high fives, but high fiving is about the grace of God and the love of Christ and a hope of eternal life and the resurrection of the dead than to talk about anything else, whether I say it or not. Every time I'm part of a conversation that is not about Christ and his word and the glory of God, I leave disgusted. Let us be... Thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk with the same rule, let us mind the same thing. To whatever degree we are running this race, let's make sure we follow the rules. There's a course. Every race has a course. You know, go down till you see the yellow cones and turn left and go down that street for a half a mile and turn right at the next yellow cone. The Lord has given us a race course, and it's right here. And there's only one way by which you can measure. For all those of us who are in the race and who want to serve Christ, we only measure it one way, the rule of God, which is given in the Holy Scriptures. Every man that striveth for the mastery, according to 2 Timothy 2.5, had better obey the rules so that he can win the prize lawfully. And then while we're running, we do it with one mind. And that is the exciting purpose for a church. Do you know why we come together? It's to cheer each other on in our race. It's to exhort one another on in our race. It's to provoke one another on in our race. Brother, are you still running? Will you run with me? We're running to the heavenly city. And yes, Pilgrim's Progress is a pretty good book. As far as books go. But we're running a race together and we've got to help one another. And when we see someone slowing down 
and looking like they're about ready to quit and start walking. We've got to come along beside them and point out what's up ahead. And that if they'll just pick up the pace again, the Lord will give them grace to keep pressing on. But it's so much easier when we're all doing it together. Look at what the apostle squeezes into that one verse. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let's follow the word of God in its description of the race course, and let us mind the same thing. Let us have a joint effort, a teamwork of winning that race. That is why we come together in churches, brethren. I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to, it's this simple. I'd rather stay home. I'm a loner. I don't like people. I'd rather stay home and worship God with my wife and children. It's easier. I'm saying all that for my flesh. I speak as a fool. Because you know what the word of God says? There's a reason for this church. And when I come in here, some of you come up to me and give me a bear hug. And I see your faces and you want to do what's right. And you want to serve the Lord. and You want to run your race. It rejuvenates my own spirit. And I'm your pastor. And it's the way it's supposed to be. Brethren, be followers together of me. Notice the verse. Brethren, be followers together. Not one person over here running it one way, another person over here running another way, looking down at this person because he feels that they're behind and they should be ahead and they're not. And this person looks over here says, I think they're behind. No, 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 no. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Anyone that's living a life like the Apostle Paul should be set up in a congregation and followed. Mark the perfect man. Psalm 37, verse 37. Paul said, Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Christ, and whatever men live a life like this, we should follow them. It is the Bible order. That's why we get together. Do you know what value a pace setter is? There are no world records set in distance races anymore without a rabbit. That is someone to go out and set the pace. When a man is running a mile race, if he gets a few seconds off his pace in the first two or three laps, he cannot make up the difference in that last lap to set a world record. So he has to have someone running as a pace setter in front of him to pull him along through the half mile point of a mile race at a fast enough pace that he can still set the world record. It's now common knowledge. They can't set world records without him. And do you know what? Paul understood that. The Holy Ghost knew that a long time ago because he said, Be followers together of me and mark them which walk so ye have us for an ensample. That's a pace setter. That's a person who's running the race better at the appropriate pace and get caught up to them. It is so much easier when you have someone right in front of you to just keep right on going and keeping that margin of separation at two feet, three feet, six feet and run behind them. And this is a race. And the race is... Find those that are living a life sold out to Jesus Christ and follow them. And then we have something in parentheses, and it's Paul's warning. For many walk. This is a disgraceful shame. For many walk, of whom I have told you often. Notice, I have told you often because this is a common problem. I have told you often, and I now tell you even weeping. While he wrote the words to Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he wept that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He is not talking about people out in the world. He couldn't care less about them. Right. He is talking about two ways of walking in the church of Jesus Christ. Those that are walking just the way I am, that are thus minded, follow them. Then there are other people that walk. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly whose end is destruction. If they're children of God, it's destruction like the children of God were destroyed in the church at Corinth. Most likely they're not, and their destruction is eternal torment. But they're in the church of Jesus Christ, whose God is their belly. They're belly worshipers. Belly there is synecdoche. It's put for the part of the body. The belly is just put for part of the body, your appetites. Everything of this life is more important to them, so they're God. The most important thing to them is the things of this life, represented as belly worshipers. I love his language. I think that's pretty plain. I think being a belly worshiper just gets, just gets right down and says it so 
succinctly and beautifully. And whether it's politically correct or pulpit correct, it doesn't matter because it's Holy Ghost correct. Amen. This is what he calls anybody who, who is not serving Christ sold out. They're belly worshipers. God is their belly. Their belly is their God. And whose glory is in their shame, they get excited and they are moved and they are passionate about the things that ought to cause them shame. Right. Whose glory is in their shame. And here is the horrible description. Enemies of the cross of Christ, they were so horrible that it caused Paul to weep. He had to spend much time warning the Philippians about them. Their God is their belly, whose end is destruction. And do you know what the, de the definition of these people truly is? They mind earthly things. Right. Anything of this earth. What are the big three? Jeremiah 9. What are the big three things of this earth? Wealth, Wealth strength, strength intellect. intellect, education. Three, three big things. Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. They mind earthly things. I said it earlier. I cannot say it again. All I can say to you is we all deceive ourselves by saying my earthly things are noble. There are no noble earthly things. Right. What if a woman was to de dedicate herself to raising the perfect family? Is that a noble thing? She ain't taking it with her and it's not going to help her in the day of judgment. Because what she's got to do is pursue Christ. You say, but shouldn't a woman be a good mother? Of course. But do you know where it is in the list? It can't be seen. It's way down there somewhere because the list is seeking Christ. You show me a woman who's seeking Jesus Christ first, and Jesus Christ is the most, she'll be the perfect mother, and the Lord will be, the Lord will be blessing and multiplying all her efforts, and she'll have a wonderful family. Right. You know, the problem is, that I, I'll admit it, the problems in my family are where I got my sight off of Jesus Christ and began to sink in the water. If Jesus Christ is first, the Lord will take care of the rest. And the rest becomes so easy because Jesus Christ is there. But brethren, I must warn you, there are only two things we can be, pressing saints or belly worshipers. What is a belly worshiper? We mind earthly things. How do you know if somebody minds earthly things? They talk about them. They spend their time doing them. They spend their money for them. It's what they get the most excited about. That's minding earthly things. If a woman talks about her family all the time, spends all of her time on her family, spends all of her money on her family, and gets most excited about her family and getting a family picture taken, how precious. And I only ridicule it to make the point that how much better to see that woman talking about Jesus Christ spending time with Jesus Christ, her money and efforts and energy for Jesus Christ, and being passionately excited about Jesus Christ. Right, That's a different kind of a woman. There's only two women you can be. There's only two men that we men can be. We are pressing saints, or we are belly worshipers. There is no other category in here. Mm -hmm. We are thus minded, or we are minding earthly things. Paul then concludes by saying, and I love the way he's able to take a parenthetical element of the parenthetical long sentence of verses 18 and 19 and connect verses 20 and 21 to it and connect it back up to verse 17 as to how he lived. For our conversation is in heaven. Right. That doesn't mean we just get together and talk about heaven. Conversation means our manner of life. Right. The way we live is in heaven. All the things of this life are unimportant to us, and heaven is most important, and that's how we live. For our conversation is in heaven. We're told that we ought to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you looking for? More children, marriage, better job, promotion, better car, better house, better subdivision. What are you looking for? There's only one thing we ought to be looking for. The rest of it doesn't matter. Is the Lord going to take you a little faster if you're in a better subdivision, in a better house, with a better car? No. What are we looking for? 
from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be looking for. For our conversation is in heaven. We live a life that's heavenly, one that's investing on heavenly things. We're laying up our treasure in heaven where moths and rust and thieves are of no threat. Because Jesus Christ is coming, who's going to change our vile body. That says a lot for bodily exercise and eating right, doesn't it? Who's going to change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Three weeks ago, we had a reminder that our vile bodies are not where we're supposed to put all of our attention. But we forget very quickly, don't we? And we get, we get wrapped up in the rat race again. And we've got to shed that rat race and run the race for Jesus Christ, looking to heaven, living a heavenly existence, regardless of our circumstances here, not putting our emphasis there, not being earthly-minded, being heavenly-minded, and thinking of the fact that I am going to die. My job, my money, my car, my house, my wife, my kids, none of this matters. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave them all. I'm not going to take them with me. I'm not going to be able to help them when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. None of it matters. So I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live a heavenly life. And I am waiting for Jesus Christ to appear because he's coming for me. He's going to change this vile body that has this default mechanism that continually takes me away from him so that I have a default mechanism that is pure holiness, righteousness, and singing his praises forever and ever and ever. That's what we're looking for. Amen. We're to be pressing saints and not belly worshipers. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.